You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Wednesday, May 27th, 2020, just after market close in London. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined shortly by Roger Hurst from the United Kingdom. But first, here's Nick Correa with the latest market news. Thanks, Ash. In recent days, as the world moves toward reopening and recovery efforts, the EU and Japan have both proposed new stimulus packages to continue to support their ailing economies. This morning, ECB President Christine Lagarde announced that the Eurozone's output is set to contract between 8 and 12%. Lagarde said that, quote, We'll have a better sense in a few days as we publish our numbers in early June, but it's likely we will be in between the medium and severe scenarios, end quote. Ministro, adesso la parola alla Presidente von der Leyen, prego. Also today, before the European Parliament in Brussels, the European Commission's President Ursula von der Leyen proposed a stimulus package of 750 billion euros, or $824 billion, for all members by issuing bonds in capital markets. She stated that, quote, This is Europe's moment. Our willingness to act must live up to the challenges we are all facing, end quote. The unique challenge that the EU faces is that the hardest-hit countries are also the weakest financially, specifically Italy, Spain, and Greece. These proposals put forth by the EU will require the cooperation of all 27 member states, and creating programs to assist EU countries who are in dire need of help will strengthen the bond of the bloc's economic union. While many member states, including Germany and France, believe this is a necessary effort, others such as the Netherlands, Denmark, Austria, and Sweden already are showing resistance as they will want to avoid the consequential risk of having taxpayers be responsible for EU-issued debt spending elsewhere in the union. 500 billion euros would be distributed as grants so as to not further increase the burden of countries laden with debt, and Italy and Spain would be the greatest beneficiaries of this program. The other 250 billion euros will be reserved for loans that countries may apply for. Moving on to Japan, today Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's cabinet settled on a second supplementary budget of 31.9 trillion yen, or $296 billion, to combat the effects of the coronavirus on Japan's economy. This additional aid will make Japan's total stimulus spending come to approximately 230 trillion yen, about 40% of their GDP. The cabinet's supplementary budget bill proposal reportedly will be submitted to the Diet, Japan's parliament, on June 8th. The first supplementary budget, the same size as the second one, was approved by the Diet last month. Prime Minister Abe said, quote, I will defend the Japanese economy at any cost against this once-in-a-century crisis, end quote. This second supplementary budget bill comes shortly after the Prime Minister had announced the end of Japan's state of emergency on Monday. Prime Minister Abe highlighted that this new bill will raise the daily upper limit for employment adjustment subsidies for small and mid-sized companies. If these companies are furloughing their workers as opposed to laying them off, the government is covering up to 100% of leave allowances. Currently, it's set at 8,330 yen per person. With the second supplementary budget, 
it would be almost doubled to 15,000 yen between April and September. Other measures will include a cash handout program for workers who work at small and mid-sized companies were furloughed but not compensated by their employers, covering a portion of rent for firms and sole proprietors who have faced massive revenue loss, providing aid for schools who are giving breaks to students who are undergoing financial hardship, and more. And with that, I'll send it back to you, Ash. Welcome, Roger. Hi, Ash. How's it going? It's going well. You know, Roger, we had a really interesting conversation earlier this morning uh, about the state of Europe. We talked about uh, central banks, fiscal policy, uh, commercial banks, general lending. Uh, and it was really interesting to hear your take. And you explained it in a way that, you know, an American could follow. Uh, you're obviously much closer, much deeper in the weeds of this than most of us here in the States. What are you looking at right now? The I think it was Van der Leys, and I think the lady's name, the European Commission has announced the package that was floated on the 18th of May by um, Merkel and Macron, and and they sort of given it a little bit more detail today. And I think this also coincides with the comments from Lagarde, who said how bad the position for Europe was, and you know how bad it was going to be economically. I'm sure that's not um, I'm sure that's not a coincidence. I'm sure she's basically saying, look, you need the EU to step up to help the eurozone. Um, and I think, you know, the package that they've announced, it's it's a start. We discussed it before, but it still has a lot of hurdles, as everything in Europe always does. There's so many hurdles this thing has to get through before it becomes reality. Yeah, I, I'm interested, you know, as an American who doesn't follow the nuances of these institutions nearly as closely as you do, could you explain a little bit about the significance between this being handled by the European Union versus the European Central Bank? Well, I'll give it a go. I mean, there are so many institutions wrapped up in all the various parts of Europe that it's hard to keep a handle on it ourselves. But basically, obviously, the Eurozone is the euro area. It's the it's the um, monetary union. And the EU is the broader sphere, 27 countries, including places like Sweden, which obviously doesn't have the euro. And it's the part that the UK used to be a part of, but we're leaving allegedly at the end of this year. And the ECB has been doing all the heavy lifting. And this has been one of the big problems because obviously we know about all the issues of whether they can buy bonds to what size, are they following the capital keys, are they buying too many in one country versus another. And the ECB, in fact, Draghi had said many times before he left that it needed the fiscal authorities to come in. That's the government and effectively the European Union, which is the body above everything there. And so they've come in and said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to basically sell bonds. So we're going to raise debt. We're going to do it to 500 billion. And this, the key bit that's going to be up for the debate is that rather than being um, loans, this is going to be grants, which are non, or no, no requirement for refunds, so non-refundable grants. So basically handing out money, and that's 500 billion of the 750 billion that was um, unveiled today. And that's going to be the point of, well, that's going to be this potential sticking block is, will all 27 countries sign up to something which effectively could raise money in one area and just give it away to another. Yeah, you know, you touched on something uh, in in that uh, that I think you could probably give us a little more detail on, which was the notion of the capital key at the European Central Banks, what it is and why it's so significant. Yeah, they they basically said that at the the um, euro level, when they're buying bonds, they have a limit to how many you can buy as a percentage of each country, and it's around about thirty three percent. So they basically sort of have a limit now. Obviously. If you have a finite number of bonds in any one country, then eventually you'll hit that 33% limit. If you've got a country which continues to basically raise, raise money by selling bonds, then you can obviously have more and more bonds bought because you'll never reach the 33%. But then you'll break all your Maastricht criteria. So you'll basically be too laden with debt. So it's always been this balancing act. And 
for a number of countries, it was getting close to the limits of how much they could buy unless the country started to basically sell more debt. The problem is the countries that need to do that are the ones that are probably closest to or have already broken the rules anyway. So they've been looking for a way around this. And at the same time, they've been under scrutiny in various other parts of this whole sort of scheme from places like the German Constitutional Court, which had a ruling on something slightly different a couple of weeks ago, but it's along the same lines of how much can you buy, how much you're allowed to buy, um, and and is this therefore constitutional on a country level versus the supranational level of the ECB and ultimately the EU, the European Union? Yeah, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I found so interesting uh, was you've sort of framed out the coalitions and how they're forming. You talked about the Frugal Four. Um, what are some of those basic uh, organizations and how they're playing off against each other from a policy and political perspective? Well, the big thing here is that, and I think this is the biggest part of this whole deal, is that um, it was announced on the 18th of May. I think it was only the day before, according to the press reports, that Macron didn't actually realize that or didn't know that Merkel was going to back it so wholeheartedly. This was a bit of a U-turn by Merkel. She basically said, we are going to go for this, this mutualization. And that, you know, getting Germany on the side when Germany had been so hawkish for so long was a major coup. And the reasons behind that, which I think are the ruling by the German constitutional court, the fact that this is such a big problem for Europe in terms of the coronavirus, et cetera. Um, and also Merkel is obviously wanting probably a legacy as she gets towards the end of her tenure. So Germany having them on side is a big boon for the concept, but there is still the frugal four, which is Denmark, Sweden, Austria, and the Netherlands. And they want this money, this 500 billion, to not be a grant, which is non-refundable, but to be loans. And loans normally have a penalty against it. So the Frugal Four have already rejected it. They rejected it um, over the weekend in, a, I think, a, a note on, on Saturday. But they're a little bit isolated at the moment because even Wolfgang Schauble, who is the former German finance minister, an uberhawk from 2012, was always saying nine to everything. But he's actually come out in favor of this. So he's kind of on side. So all of a sudden, the Frugal Four are looking a little bit more isolated. So the pressure will build on them, but at the moment, they're still pushing back. So at th this stage, it's a great balloon that's been floated, but there is still quite a few hurdles to get past in order for this to come to fruition. Yeah, that, that was such a fascinating development. Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, you know, what it says that Herr Schäuble has moved in that direction. Is there some political shift in the CDU? Is this a broader trend uh, in Germany toward attempting to salvage the Eurozone no matter what? What's your view of that? Well, I think firstly, it's it's sort of, you know, I think the German Constitutional Court has revealed the dirty little secret that everybody knows, which is that the ECB basically has been um, has been required to do the heavy lifting and really push the envelope of what's allowed time and time again in order to bail out the Eurozone or certain parts of the Eurozone. And I think that there's a realization that there is a lot of pressure being brought to bear on the ECB from external sources, or when I say external sources, outside the ECB itself, which is basically saying, you know, you're pushing what you can do. Then I think the second thing is that Angela Merkel herself has got a very, very high approval rating at the moment because Germany's obviously, by the looks of it, handled the coronavirus pretty well compared to most of Europe. And so she was always been, as you'd expect for most of the leaders, been pro-Europe, but has always been playing off being pro-Europe with obviously the desires from a lot of Germans, which has always been that, that hawkish stance. So I think given that the issues that Europe has, the problems that the ECB is now coming up against, uh, the fact that she's coming to the end of her term and she's got an approval rating, these are all reasons why I think she has uh, put her weight behind this. Um, and ultimately, you know, there have been people saying that you know, the European idea itself could be under threat 
if the problems that certain parts of Europe have faced during this crisis are not dealt with sooner rather than later. So I think these were all the sort of motives behind it. Yeah, Roger, that's so interesting. Having a high level narrative like that and have you explain it in that way is, is really helpful to me. I obviously don't follow this as closely as you do. And I think most of us here in the States, when, you know, when we hear this discussed on financial news, it's either very shallow and superficial or it's so far into the weeds uh, talking about, you know, the, the mechanics of various agreements embedded within certain uh, regulatory frameworks. It's very hard to follow. But that's such a crisp, uh, I think, summary of what's happening. And the point that you ended on there is a critical one, which is this is potentially an existential threat to the eurozone if these problems don't get solved. Yeah, and look, it's one of those things where I think it's impossible, as I mentioned at the very beginning, it's, you know, even for a European who's embedded in this, it's very hard to kind of get everything, all the ducks aligned in terms of all these different things. So I do I do kind of work in generalizations. But you mentioned that it's, a, it's an existential threat, but there are some people who think that it could be potentially a turning point for Europe. People have been talking about it being the Alexander Hamilton moment, and Hamilton being one of the um, founding fathers of, of the US after independence around 1804 and helped devise the financial system that's sort of the basis of, of what you have today. And people are saying, is this the beginning of federalism um, for Europe as well? And that would be a big change. I mean, you know, this would be, I always say that Europe is always looking for a Rubicon to cross. They've crossed many so far and there are many more to go, but this would be one of the big Rubicons. So if they can potentially get the Frugal Four to sign up, then they will be crossing a Rubicon and there'll be no looking back. And people do worry that what's been announced has been 500 billion, which is a drop in the ocean compared to the 20 trillion, give or take, that's the European economy. But if they manage to get this signed off, then 500 billion will merely be the start and people will ultimately expect it to expand a lot further from there. Yeah, it's very interesting. It could be crossing the Rubicon or potentially crossing the Rhine, I guess, with uh, the support of uh, Herr Dr. Schäuble behind this. Absolutely. And, you know, this is this is why it's an interesting one, because in the press, it got a bit of, of, um, of kind of time, a bit of coverage, but it didn't get as much as you'd have expected for something which could be a game changer. And this is I mean, this is not hyperbolic language. It could be a game changer. Now, we've been many times in a situation where we've seen something that could be a game changer. And when eventually after a couple of years roll on, you realize that actually all they did was they they passed the, the poison chalice around from one institution to another. But yeah. certainly if you get debt mutualization, it's the thing that most people have pushed against. The problem is debt mutualization doesn't work unless you have a fiscal um, unity as well, i.e. everybody has to have the same level of taxes. They have to be pensionable at the same age. The whole system of benefits has to be equalized. And that's a mammoth task, which is just unthinkable at this stage. So debt mutualization, but without that side of it being fixed as well, it'd be it'd be quite something to behold. Yeah, you know, there's the, the there are the philosophical problems and there are also just the sequential mechanical challenges of this. There's seems to be a, a case where you have this, you can't do A without B, but you can't do C without A. And it's like this weird sequencing issue, uh, debt mutualization, banking union, uh, unified fiscal authority, unified taxing authority. These are incredibly thorny issues uh, that, um, you know, have at their core uh, issues of, of, of sovereignty. Uh, and those sorts of problems are very challenging to solve. Absolutely immense. I mean, we've got countries in, in um, Europe who quite recently, we had one country which extended its um, or increased its retirement age to 67. Another was trying to reduce it down to 60. I think it did reduce it down to 60. You can't have that. If you have a true union, if you're going to have debt mutualization, that's not going to be a constant 
movement of, of capital from one area, one geography to another. Because if I retire at 67 and you retire at 60, then I'm paying for seven years for you to have a good time on the beach. And that can't happen. And so it's this sort of thing. There's this monumental structural change that would need to take place. And that's always been the biggest pushback, particularly from the frugal four. Is, and this is the bit to watch for in this, is that they might go for grants rather than loans. Will this just be a temporary 500 billion, so therefore it can't expand? Or will they demand structural changes to go with it being a grant? But structural changes take so long, and the grant needs to be kind of now. So you can just see where this battleground is, is already going to kind of be fought. Yeah, you know, you talked about this earlier, where you talked about the French lowering retirement ages while the Dutch is, are increasing them. These are really thorny uh, challenges, uh, especially when you have uh, a continent of, uh, well, I don't want to overstate the case, but you have people, I think it's fair to say, whose grandfathers were not sharing pints and pubs. I mean, Europe will always be um, different. And one of the things that I love about Europe is and going to Europe is because there's so much difference around Europe in such a small space. But it's always one of these great ironies. If you remember the 2012 debt crisis, and you'd have, you know, when all these countries were blowing up, you'd go, the Irish are saying, well, we're not like the Portuguese. The Portuguese are not like the Greeks. The Greeks are not like the Finnish. The reality is, if you want a union, you all have to be the same. And they're just not. And the whole reaction in 2012 was proof that they're not the same, which is great, but it makes it very, very difficult to have a true union. So, you know, what we're looking at here is a baby step. It's a balloon that's been floated and no more and no less at this stage. But some people would say it could open the Pandora's box. Others could say it opens something towards a truly unified Europe. But yeah, that's that's a long way down the road. This is just sticking plaster at this stage. I'm curious, Roger, from, from a cultural standpoint, when you talk to people in their 20s, uh, do they feel a true European identity that uh, supersedes their national identity? How do they think about that? Well, I, I mean, in the UK, it's always sort of been a UK. But then in the UK, if you're from Manchester, you're a Mancunian. If you're from London, you're a Cockney, if you're from the right part. So that identification has always been there. I don't think it's any different in Europe either. Um, so it's one of these hard things where I think the European concept is one of having your cake and eat it, which is everybody wants to retain their identity and be individual, but they want the benefits of mutualization. But the benefits of mutualization are almost impossible if you want your individual identity. So mm. it becomes, it can never fulfill itself. And you can see that pretty much everywhere. I mean, you know, Britain is incredibly um, similar, but also incredibly disparate. And I think it's the same in Europe. So it's going to be very hard, I think to truly get this into a true mutualization position. The desire for benefits without costs, who's heard of that before? Exactly, we all love it. <laughs> so Roger, we also talked more specifically uh, about the European banking sector. What are your thoughts about that? Well, today we saw, in fact, over the last couple of days, we've seen some pretty good moves in the banking sector, but it's been out of this consolidation pattern. And I think it's all part and parcel of what looks like a rotation that's been going through the market. So obviously, we've been just used to the Nasdaq flying away into the heavens. Um, over the last few days, we've seen the Nasdaq underperforming. In fact, what we've seen is things like the Russell 2000. Um, the Russell 2000 had a bit of disappointing action today. It was up about 2% and then drifted back to flat and is up a bit more. But what it looks like is that we've got to that stage where it's a case of risk on to the point where you go, OK, well, now we'll start rotating within equities. So we saw banks performing well. Um, we saw the Russell performing well. We saw the transports performing well, but we saw the Nasdaq now underperforming. So that's distribution that's taking place, which you don't say that's the top of a market, but it's often that the, the momentum phase is starting to shift. And you can also see it in, in some of the currencies as well. I mentioned this last week where emerging market currencies 
was starting to break a little bit high. And we've had a good run, if you're a trader, that is, not for an investor, but you've had a good run in a lot of emerging market currencies. And what this all really goes down to is that those areas of the economy that have a lot of debt have been doing well. If you if you map the JP Morgan Emerging Market FX Index versus the Eurozone banks, they're pretty much the same in terms of shape over the last five years with one six-month period about four years ago where they diverged. I think the reason behind this is something that Rao was talking about recently, which is these are both relatively debt-laden type of um, environments. Emerging markets, we know, corporate debt mainly, a bit of government debt, but mainly corporate and then banks, particularly in Europe, laden with debt, mainly government debt and and uh, and a, a bit of uh, sort of financial debt, obviously, I'm um, sorry, corporate debt as well. But these broke out from a consolidation pattern where they hadn't really bounced until two or three days ago. It's difficult to read anything too much into that. I just think it's, it's taken two months of rally before these things have broken out. To me, that is towards the end of the process, not the beginning of the process. I heard that in Europe today, there was some momentum um, from institutions buying European equities, but they've been in the doldrums for so long. Um, I still think that when you look at banks, nothing's particularly changed. Yes, this package is at the margin, beneficial if it happens, but overall the outlook for banks, overall outlook for yield curves and yields is flatter yield curves or flattish yield curves, negative yield curves, ones that are just not beneficial to banks. So I would still be a seller of the bounces in the banks in Europe, and I would be a seller of the emerging market bounces in FX as well. Yeah, I mean, when you just look at the U.S. two-year uh, and the U.S. 10-year treasury, it's not a bullish uh, market for banks. And so you're right. I mean, for banks, this is a really difficult environment, and I can't see it getting any better because you're getting people um, at the Fed, someone today, I, I forget who it was, talking about yield curve control, so capping yields out along the curve. So what's going to happen is that you're going to get yields which are close to zero, in some cases in Europe, negative. You might have a yield curve that has some steepness in it, but it will be in negative territory. So none of this is good for banks. And at the same time, if you are distorting the yield curve and creating a cost of capital that's below where it should be, but that really kind of informs people's decision making, then you're not going to get any long-term capex out of this. This is why savings will go up. So the whole dynamic of capping yield curves and having forced yields and interest rates to zero or negative means banks can't make any money. Corporates don't think they can invest to make money in the long term, so they won't. Savings will go up. Velocity of money falls further. So it's just not a great environment for banks. So these will become, I've called them utilities. And what I mean by that is they will just be very boring companies that lend a little bit of cash at a small margin, but they will not be the, um, the sort of that, that huge behemoths that we saw the last 20, 30 years, they'll come come back to something which is a little bit dull with sort of people in gray suits and, and gray moustaches and beards and, and no offense to anyone, but you know, it'll just be a little bit more quiet and genteel. No offense taken by anyone with a gray moustache. Roger, you know, as the kids say, what a time to be alive. There's good news and there's bad news. Uh, the bad news is that, um, you know, yields are negative. The good news is that uh, there's uh, there's some steepness in the curve. I mean, man, that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty grim prognosis. Yeah, and it's not enough, is it? I mean, my, my own view on the yield curve is that um, I do think that the Fed will be locked for longer around zero and that the movement towards negative rates and yields will come along the curve. Now, you'll have this kind of weird thing where I could see that you know, the the five, the two-year and the five-year yield go significantly lower and the 10-year will go lower, but not as low as those two, but with potentially the Fed still keeping those interest rates around zero. So I think that the heavy lifting will come from the three-month space, which has already gone negative um, on a couple of occasions, 
out to the belly of the curve in particular, then what's going to be really interesting is what happens in the 10 and 30 year space. Because if you do get fiscal, then the pressure will be on. And we've seen some of this with some of the steepening that we've seen um, of late is that expectation for um, more spending should push 10 and 30 year yields higher. But central banks and the Fed, like the Fed, keep on saying, well, we don't want that. We don't want borrowing costs to spiral out of control. So you're just going to get this really boring flat curve. There's no income to be generated from it of, of any note. And therefore, banks will hoard cash. The velocity of money, again, will fall because they won't want to lend. And most corporates will probably be more bothered about dealing with a balance sheet rather than borrowing. Unfortunately, those that can borrow are the zombie companies. Those that need to borrow are the small family um, offices and, and companies that ultimately will probably be the ones filing for bankruptcy. Yeah, some real challenges and pain coming in the real economy for small and medium-sized enterprises. But, you know, when you talk about boring, Roger, I, I'm sort of struck by the idea that banking could be a boring business again. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. It's interesting, if you if you watch old movies from the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, and uh, someone was introduced as a banker, they were the most boring guy in the room. It was a guy in a three-piece suit, as you said, with a white mustache. Uh, this was not an exciting person. And then something happened uh, during the uh, during the 80s and 90s where it uh, it became the place that all smart, ambitious kids wanted to go. I was at uh, BB&T and Credit Suisse uh, in my 20s. I know you were at Goldman and I think Morgan Stanley and then Deutsche Bank. There was a real a magnetic pull that banks held for ambitious young people. And I wonder if that is no longer going to be the case. I think that you know that was the financialization of almost everything, and we saw that with you know mon there was money, spare money to invest, and banks worked out a way to do it. But it was I think the the interesting uh, conversation was Kirill Sokolov with Lacey Hunt talking about how uh, actually no it was it Richard Werner talking about how the number of banks have fallen. In the old days, you used to have loads and loads of banks, and you probably knew the bank manager, and and they helped you with your local business. Whereas today, they became these sort of fan financial behemoths doing financial engineering, and kind of becoming otherworldly. They need to get back to the real world. And remember, this is a real world problem that we've got today. And we need to get kind of the money into the real world. Unfortunately, we don't have the system to do that. As we've talked about before, the people who can get the money, the big boys, the people who need the money are the smaller companies, smaller family offices, smaller family businesses. They're not going to be able to get hold of it in a rapid enough time, which is why we have the issues of solvency down the road um, over the next, well, I'd say months, but probably over the next couple of years. Yeah. I don't think financial engineering is ever going away. It may move out, out of the banks. It may move into uh, hedge funds, uh, private equity. God knows what kind of special purpose vehicles will be spun off to do it. Uh, but uh, there are too many IQ points that are having too much fun and making too much money for that business ever to go away. Well, the, the financial engineering has been going on for a long time. I actually just took delivery of a, a book from uh, Cambridge University Judd School um, that was written in 2016, which was a kind of a response after 2008 of financial history. And in the opening page, it just basically says financial engineering, it's been going on for a couple of hundred years, you know, mutual funds, a couple of hundred years old. They're not things that have just appeared in the last 50 years or even 100 years. This sort of stuff has been around for a very long time. And humans are very innovative. They'll always find ways of doing it. But I do believe that banks should not have abnormal profits, which is what we saw in the 2000s when there was just that huge amount of leverage. And it was kind of obvious retrospectively that a, a sector that is very, very old, you know, hundreds of years old, was suddenly making these abnormal profits that should go to an entrepreneur. And we used to always say, but we're entrepreneurs. We weren't. We just leveraged everything up. We took small margins, leveraged them up, and then said, hey, how great we are. Um, and unfortunately, what's happened since the banks went bust is the rest of the economy, all the other corporates did exactly the same thing. 
they followed the same path and they leveraged up, which is ultimately is, is effectively what share buybacks became. And so it just, that whole process will just roll around. It'll get stopped in the corporate sector. Someone else will do it. It just gets passed around the economy. Yeah, financial engineering has been going on uh, since at least the uh, the South Seas bubble. Uh, the innovation called joint stock companies, which were so controversial at the time, and now uh, have become you know something that we just take for granted. But it sounds like you're doing a little light reading on the weekends, Roger. Well, I've only just took delivery of it, but I was I was just looking into there's a couple of bits of, of history because at the end of the day, we what we're doing here is we're looking at something which has never happened before, um, you know, in terms of the speed. And we're always comparing it to, you know, we, we often talk about, is this like the 1920s? Will it be a depression? Is it going to be like the 1970s? Is it going to be a stagflation? And with all these scenarios, I just think, do I know enough about those past periods to be able to compare them to today and work out what I think might be happening in the future? So I saw this book and I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll have that and see what it is. And actually, the first uh, the first page, not the first chapter, is actually all about the process of gathering information, which I think is going to kill me before I get into the meat of the book. What's the title? I'm sure someone will ask in the comments. Well, it's I've got it here, actually. It's um, it's the Financial Market History Reflections on the Past for Investors Today. And it's from Cambridge University Judge Business School. So Financial Market History by David Chambers and Elroy Dimson. There we go. We just saved some time for the people in the comments. Yeah, uh, look, I think it'll be, I, I mean, the history, this financial history, it's, it is fascinating. And it's, it's so useful, because I'm trying to work out right now, where we go inflation deflation. And I genuinely think that the periods of inflation that most people are looking at, are not the ones to use, because you had a very tight system in the 1970s, a very tight system in the 1940s, into which was injected fiat currency, the end of the last vestiges of the gold system in the 1970s. But demand was pent up, whereas today we've come into a system where demand had already been too high because of debt. Now it's all shut down. I think that's an enormous hole in which you've got to put a vast amount of liquidity, you know, fiscal monetary stimulus, accommodation, whatever you want to call it. And that'll get us just back to where we started. And that's not going to cause inflation. We've got to get beyond that. And I'm not sure that the I'm not sure there's a wherewithal yet to do that. I think we actually still need another kind of extension to the crisis for that sort of measure to be brought into action because it's the dance of death. If things get better from here, they're not going to do it. They're only gonna do it if things get a lot worse and that would be deflationary. Yeah, it, it's, you know, for those of us who uh, watched the 2008 uh, financial crisis, it, it feels a bit like the bad news is good news days, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and those, those were always the case because, you know, we got to the point now when every time a big, a really bad data point comes out, it's almost like the instant reaction is, well, that's going to be more from the Fed. And so this becomes the tricky game now is that as we approach the all-time highs, there will be less desire, less drive to put more capital in. Because remember, you could see that in January and February of this year that I think it was um, one of the Fed members, I think it was the Dallas Fed, started to say publicly, I think our liquidity has been driving the S&P to what looks like extremes. And they were becoming more cautious about liquidity. So that's an indication that as we make new all-time highs, or if we make new all-time highs, as we push on to these sort of levels, then they're going to step back because they'll feel that the job has been done. Because remember, as, as it has been said on, on this platform, I think it was that, um, the Lacey Hunt, they can lend, but they can't spend. So lending into effectively the shadow banking system and to banks who then are not actually lending it to the people who need it is therefore only going to see the, the money either directly or indirectly drive up asset prices. 
you need to get it into that real economy. That's the fiscal authorities that need to do that. So I think that the Fed will ultimately step away if we see um, these equity markets continue to rise. So it becomes a self self um, uh, leveling mechanism. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it was Lacey Hunt, a great interview with uh, Kirill Sokolov. If you haven't seen it, go and check it out. It's a really interesting analysis of many of the monetary issues that you were just talking about, Roger, and uh, some of the challenges uh, and limitations, uh, I think, was what Lacey Hunt is really so eloquent on, the limitations of monetary policy uh, and uh, the places that it simply cannot take us. Well, that's right. And I think what well, the interesting thing for that was that you know, the Federal Reserve is still limited as to what it can do, which is why it can't turn that switch on for inflation yet, which is why you've got to look at other places, which is why I think the UK uh, could be the place for that. I talked about this with Ed last week, but the e the Bank of England can join up and is joining up with the government to basically allow the government to spend and then buy the debt off them. And we've got a freely floating currency. You know, it's it will, if they do that, it should put pressure on sterling downwards versus other currencies. Now, people might say, well, not against the euro because the euro is a basket case. It should against the US. We've had a couple of days where sterling's had a nice little risk on rally like everything else has. But I do think that with the potential for the UK to go quite hard on the fiscal front, potential for Brexit to still be a problem because the uncertainty means that there's not much tension coming on it. And I think that the Europeans will play hardball. Um, I think that sterling could be a good play on the downside, probably against the dollar because uh, that would be the obvious one. Um, maybe even the euro, but you know, I can understand why so many people would be unsure of the euro because there is just this uncertainty. Should you be positive the euro if this rescue fund is is agreed, or should you be negative because they're going to go kind of fiscally quite aggressive? I think personally, sterling is still the best one to look at for that within that European context because we're the first mover. Yeah, I was going to ask, and it seems as though you've already started to uh, give us uh, an analysis of this, but what are you going to be looking at going forward to understand how that thesis is playing out? Well, the first thing is that I've, I've been looking for yields between the UK and the US to close, and that's already been happening. But it's actually been some of those ones where I was right, but for the wrong reasons. It wasn't that UK yields went up. It was actually that US yields had a lot further to fall in this sort of environment. But We've seen the yields between the UK and the US um, starting to close. So that's already happened. Um, it's interesting that we've seen the front end of the UK curve also go negative, because if they're going to be profligate, then we should start worrying about inflation. But it shows you the problems of the, or it shows you the deflationary problems that they have, that yields want to go negative two-year space and the five-year space. So I think if they start to nudge back up, but really, again, you've got to look at the long end. The long end is nudging back up in terms of yield. I'll be looking at that. And then obviously, you know, what are we looking on, on sterling? We've been down sort of to 110 sort of levels. I think we can get back down there. I'm looking for parity versus the dollar um, over the longer term. Um, and that's going to be good for the UK because it will be inflationary, but there's going to be a point where UK will look attractive to foreign investors. This is always one of my theses anyway uh, around the Brexit story, is that if our currency started to fall, well, actually, you'd want to pile in because foreigners will be will be piling in as well. So I see the UK as just being a stabilizing mechanism in terms of sterling coming down. I don't think it's going to be sudden, a sudden crash, but I do think that the UK has the first mover. So, you know, just taking out some of the recent lows, back below 120, it's currently been in the one, you know, the low 120s. Below 120, I'd look for a little bit of momentum to build on that. Well, you know, we started with the 50,000 foot overview of the narrative and we ended very tactically on a specific point uh, to look for in FX. Yeah. And you know, FX, I think, still remains 
perhaps the best source of, of clarity on the global environment. EMFX is currently bouncing because people, I think, are getting a little bit more comfortable. But if it starts to roll over again, particularly EMFX, then I think we're again pricing in a move away from solvency, sorry, moving away from liquidity being solved to solvency becoming an issue. So far, liquidity, it feels, has been solved. Things are belatedly starting to move on the value chain. But if they start to roll over fairly quickly, I think people will realize that we're in this for the long haul. So EMFX just remains my focus not EMFX, FX in general remains my focus to give me clues on where things are going. Yeah. So uh, once again, short-term liquidity issues relatively easy to solve. Long-term solvency issues, very different story. Absolutely. Yeah. Roger, I always enjoy your analysis. I look forward to these conversations every week. Good to speak to you as well. And I'll speak to you next week, I guess. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.